Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Hi, I'm Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. Welcome to this week's episode of Talking Trading. Today we have an incredible story from the Australian Tax Office of all places. A share trader was denied a tax refund on the grounds that her trading business was not being run professionally. The childcare worker earned $40,000 a year and she used her savings to trade the market but she was denied a tax refund of $20,000 on her trading losses. How could this have happened? Well, we find out today with accountant Jason Cunningham of The Practice. Jason spells out the essential criteria you need to know in running a trading business. And in the second half of this interview, we also hear the personal rags-to-celebrity story of Jason himself how his family lost everything in his childhood and how this created his money script and drove him to build his accounting firm, The Practice. Jason Cunningham from The Practice. Hello and welcome to Talking Trading. Hey Caroline, how are you? Great to have you back. Jason, a taxpayer has incredibly been dubbed as not a share trader despite making substantial share trades. What are the facts of this story? Yes, uh, great question, Caroline. Let me let me start by prefacing it this way, if I can. In the eyes of the tax office, uh, someone who trades the market can be considered uh, either one or two ways. The first is as an investor, or the second is in the business of trading. Now, for most of our clients that participate in trading activity, their preference would be to be considered in the eyes of the tax office as in the business of trading because of a couple of reasons. Number one, typically when you're in a business, it avails you to more tax deductions and we all love a tax deduction. Secondly, that if we make a loss from the trading activity, we can offset that loss against any other income. And thirdly, it allows us to treat our stock like trading stock. And what I mean by that is at the end of the financial year, you can uh, value your stock on either cost or net realizable value, and ostensibly that means you can bring in unrealized losses. So that's what happened in this situation. It was it dates back to uh, 2011 on her tax return, where she made a loss from trading, and what she wanted to do was offset that loss against the other income that she earned. And I believe she was working as a as a childcare educator. She made about 40 or 50 grand in wages made a loss of about $20,000 and wanted to offset that loss against the income she earned from her employer and subsequently get a tax refund. Now, that refund was denied despite the fact that she'd made 71 purchases throughout the year and made 37 sales. So 
in most people's eye, they would think, hang on, that's a fair bit of activity. That, that, that level of activity, one would argue, is more than a typical investor, okay? But the, uh, the decision by the senior member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal said, well, really, that's only one of the factors that we and the commissioner look at when we assess whether you're in the business of trading or whether you're an investor, so let's have a quick chat about that because I think that's really important because too often we see clients get caught up in the number of trades that don't look at the other aspects that the commissioner looks at. So there's two components to it. First are general factors that the commissioner looks at and then there are some more specific factors. Now, we've taken this information not only from the fact sheet that the tax office put out on their website but also from various different case law that's happened in the past. And when we, when we look at... The relevant general factors that the Commissioner looks at, they are as follows. Firstly, they look at the nature of your activities and whether or not they have a purpose of generating a profit. Secondly, they look at the complexity and the magnitude of the undertaking. Thirdly, whether or not you engage in your trading activity quite regularly, uh, routinely or systematically. Next, more, and very importantly, that you operate in a business-like manner. Now, this for mine is one of the more pertinent rules that the commissioner looks at because if you want to be considered to be in the business of trading, then it makes sense that you behave in a business-like manner. Yeah. Uh, next, it's whether or not you make any profits from a discernible pattern of trading. And then finally, they look at the volume of capital employed. Now, in the case that we've just spoken about where uh, this woman's deductions were denied, really all she had going in her favour, and this was from the, uh, the senior member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, was that she had quite a large uh, turnover and she had a number of trades. But what she didn't have, and, and they made this point out loud, was that it said that her activities were quite basic and lacked sophistication to constitute a share trading business. There was no demonstrated pattern of trading although there was a business plan, but there was no pattern in her trading. They also mentioned that she had no prior skills or experience prior to this occurrence. And finally, that the trades were not systematic throughout the year. They only took place in one part of the year. So what are our learnings from that? Well, I guess the main thing is we need to focus that it's not just the number of trades or how much capital you employ, but it's also the other things that are quite pertinent. And when I look at you know, the graduates that we meet and we work with from the mentor program, you know, they've got a, a lot of things in their favour. Number one, they undertook some study. Uh, they do paper trading. They create a trading plan and a business plan. So they get their, we use this phrase, get their chocks up, get their skills up prior to entering into a business, you know. And if you, if you break it down and you look at a trading business like any other business, you wouldn't go and open uh, up a restaurant for, uh, per se or a transport business if you had no experience driving a truck or if you've never, you know, worked in a cafe or never done any of that sort of stuff. So it makes sense that you do undertake the uh, necessary education and the necessary training but also that paper trading, getting that experience because as you and I know, Caroline, when it comes to, you know, trading, we're talking about quite an emotional experience here where you, we, we, when you're dealing with money. As a subsection to that, so not only those general factors that I spoke about, there's also the specific factors that they look at. They look at the size of the turnover. They look at whether or not you uh, operate to a plan. Uh, they look at whether or not you maintain an office. They'll look at the repetition and regularity in the buying and selling of your shares. They look at how you account 
for your transactions, how you keep records and whether you keep records on a gross receipts or a net receipts basis and whether or not you're engaged in another profession. So what I'm trying to say in, in, and I guess implore on you is that they look at the overall big picture, not just one aspect of the criteria that they set out. Maintain an office. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, by having an office, so, you know, one can't just uh, open up or, you know, open up an office or have a, a dedicated space in your, in your home and say, hey, that's it, I'm in the business of trading. That's just one aspect. And what we implore on our clients is if you are trying to build a case to say that you are in the business of trading, then I would look at all the facets and each case you've got helps mount your argument that, yes, I am serious about this. This is not a hobby business. And where this all started and, and, and the history behind this is uh, way back when, this is, I, I went into business 18 and a half years ago, way back when there was no real case law on this sort of stuff. There was no case law, nor where there's no opinion provided by the tax office that what constitutes a trading business versus not. What they used as precedence, if you like, is this concept of a hobby farmer. Now, I'm from Melbourne and there's an affluent suburb in Melbourne called Turak. And so there was, there's a phrase known as the Turak hobby farmers where rich people would have, you know, a few acres out the back of the airport. They'd run two or three cows on it and run it as a tax deduction to offset against their income. Mm. The government said, well, hang on, are you, do you have a hobby business or do you have a real business? Mm. And using similar facets of that argument, hobby farm versus real farm, the tax office used that same argument, if you like, about being a hobby investor versus actually operating a trading business. So all mentorees must operate their trading as a business. Absolutely. If, 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 if they want to be considered in the business of trading. Now, not everybody would want to have that as their criteria. And I'll give an example. If you are somebody that's a long-term investor, so if you buy and hold equities and sell them over a period, you know, holding them for 12 months or longer, then you'd want to be considered an investor because an investor, their gains are subject to a capital gains tax regime, whereas a trader is subject to the income tax regime. Now, why that's important and the distinction is the 12-month period of holding that asset is if you hold an asset for 12 months or longer and therefore it's a realisation of an asset, your capital gain is slashed in half, right? And therefore you pay arguably half the tax. But most of the mentorees that come through the program are in and out of trades within a 12-month period, so therefore they're never going to avail themselves to that capital gains tax discount. So that, that's my little caveat. You know, as an accountant, we love to have caveats, right? <laughs> and a little disclaimer. So to summarise this whole story, mm-hmm. what advice do you have to share traders? Well, I think the tax office are on the money in the sense... <laughs> Don't get me wrong, the tax office is not my favourite organisation. Obviously, I'm an accountant. But they're on the money in the sense that if you want to be considered in the business of trading, then you should behave like a business owner. And what I will tell you is this. The traders that I've seen that don't pay it the due diligence that they should and are quite flippant in their activity tend to be the ones that don't make any money. But those that are serious about what it is that they're doing and have a trading plan, but not just a trading plan, they have a business plan and an overall strategy, behave in a business-like manner. They have various different advisors. They continue with their learning and development. They keep records in an appropriate methodology. They have an accountant and they stick to the rules of trading and it's like sticking to the rules of business, those are the people that have a better chance of being successful than those are the ones that don't. So that's why I'm saying I agree with the tax office in that aspect of being fed income 
about your business. And we'll hear more from Jason after the break. The event of the year has arrived. Wealth Retreat is the ultimate mastermind networking conference for real estate investors, share traders and entrepreneurs. Create a legacy of lifetime wealth and develop an instant peer group of like-minded investors. Join Michael Yardney, Chris Tate and Louise Bedford on the Gold Coast for five days starting the last weekend in May. To find out more and to qualify for a special bundle of bonuses because you're a talking training listener, go to wealthretreat.com.au forward slash trader. You'll get a rare chance to sit one-on-one with Chris Tate and Louise Bedford when you come along. So visit wealthretreat.com.au forward slash trader today. And now back to Jason Cunningham. Okay, Jason, I'd like the second part of this interview now to be focused around you. Oh. <laughs> you okay about that? Yeah, okay. I've got, I only got about an hour and a half. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, facts are Jason Cunningham runs the practice, employs a staff of 52 people. Three months ago at dinner, you told a story that you were down at Crown Casino and was mobbed by a group <laughs> of teenage girls. Yes. Jason, you have such an interesting story and I'd really love you to share a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. Well, I don't want our listeners to get nervous about the teenage girls thing, so I'll come to that in a minute. So I guess my story is this. I went to a private boys' school, primary school and secondary school, and in grade five I came home from school and my father was at home. You know, it's three thirty, four o'clock, and, you know, it was quite unusual because my father was never home at that time. He was always working. And he sat me and my sister and my brother down and said, look, guys, things aren't going too well. I've just lost my business. Um, the bank's about to take our house office and I've lost my car. We need to move out of this house. Um, we need to go and live with your grandmother. And don't fear, it'll only be for 12 months and things will be okay. And, uh, you know, I was probably 11 or 12 at that point in time and didn't really understand what Dad was talking about because I didn't understand how a bank could take someone's house off them. But I did understand the, uh, the implications of moving into my nan's house, you know. So I lived in a quite a, a nice suburb um, in, in Essendon and, uh, and in Melbourne we call Essendon the Turek of the north. Uh, we moved uh, three or four uh, train stations uh, north to a not-so-affluent suburb. And so things did hit home for me there. I, I, as I said, I went to a private boys' school. I got a scholarship to the secondary school, which I was fortunate enough. But when I was playing, I played football in the local area, and the kids in the local area used to give me a hard time because I went to a private boys' school. And the kids at, at, at St. Bernard's used to give me a hard time because I lived in Peasantville, right? And, and I couldn't take a trick. And I was very embarrassed about bringing any friends from school home because when we'd get home from school, once we'd done our homework, as a family, we sat around the kitchen table and we used to assemble kitchen taps and bathroom taps. So you'd get a spindle and a washer and put the tap on it and put the hot and cold sticker on. And we used to assemble taps. We used to get 14 cents a tap. So when you do a pee, you got 28 cents. And that would go towards paying the debt that mum and dad had of $98,000. And once we'd done that, we'd washed our hands and cleaned up and we'd have dinner. And then after dinner, we'd assemble fake jewellery, women's jewellery. And I, we used to get like 45 cents a pair of earrings and this was our life for six years and I I used to think you know woe is me this is not fair 
the highlight of the of the calendar year was the St. Columbus Disco, right? I remember my mum drove a Ford Escort panel van, uh, cost $500, and one of the cars where you didn't need the keys to start the ignition, you could just put your finger in the lock barrel and turn it, you know? I paid 180 grand for a car like that just recently, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and I was embarrassed uh, about going to the St. Columbus Disco in the back of the panel van, which was my mum's car, that I get her to drop me two Ks up the road. Yeah, don't blame mate, me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mate, he, his mum had a Mercedes, so when it was her turn to drive us, we'd get dropped off the front door. And I used to think, you know, woe is me. And I remember growing up as a 13, 14-year-old boy, one of the most important things for you were the runners that you wore. And I, and for years, my mum had me convinced that Adidas bought out a two-stripe, right? <laughs> and and it wasn't until the kids at school said, no, you can only get the two-stripes from Kmart. Adidas only come in a three-stripe. So, you know, I had my first job at 13 selling uh, records at the footy. And with my first paycheck, I bought myself a brand spanking pair of Adidas Roams. You know, the white ones with the blue stripes. And I was proud mm-hmm. as punch. And mum said, Jay, don't wear them to footy training. And I wore them to footy training. And they got wet and dirty. And I washed them. And I sat them on the heater when I went to have a shower. And then as I came out of the shower, I could smell something. And it wasn't a good smell. And my runners were on fire. I said, mum, I burnt my runners. Can I have some money to buy some new runners? She said, Jason, I, you know, I don't have any money. And so... Uh, you know, it was quite challenging for me growing up in that environment. And I used to think, woe is me, I'm too embarrassed to bring friends home because I lived in my nan's house and as a family we did all these different jobs and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, fast forward to today, um, two things. One, my parents went back into business and I, at the time I was didn't agree with it, but now they've become close to our most successful clients, which is wonderful for them and, and also wonderful for us because as their accountants, we charge them accordingly, right? Not only joking, they make me do taps as a 13-year-old. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the other thing is that they taught me both directly and indirectly about how to be independent and how you can achieve anything that it is that you want to achieve. And I remember mum always drilling that into me, Jay, you can do anything you want. And I said, I remember this Till the day I die, I said, Mum, even could I fly like Superman? And she said, Jay, if you put your mind to it, you can. And so I I graduated university and did quite well and I got a job at Ford Motor Company and after four years we started our business. And I guess, you know, we've come a long way. As you said, I I got mobbed by, I I work on radio, I've written a few books and I work on TV and, and that's where those young kids they recognize me, they although they thought I was a sports reporter. But anyway What drives you? Yeah, yeah, I I guess My biggest driving passion is I love to help people. Uh, I I, I believe that I have many weaknesses, Caroline, but one of my strengths is I I believe I have ability to communicate uh, financial information in a language that people understand. And so I I am quite driven to helping others. My first or our first business coach implored on us the importance of being on purpose, uh, not only in your personal life but also in your business life. Uh, and in business, we call that a mission statement. And he said to me, Jason, if you keep focusing on what it is that you give others, then what you want will come to you in return. And so we developed a mission statement 18 and a half years ago, which is to help our clients achieve their business and personal goals through proactive service and ongoing advice. And for me, that really drives me. The more I can help other people, uh, the, the better satisfaction I get. You know that saying, the more you give, the more you get. And I just, I love being able to help people. And I, I, I think that's what drives me. Going back to your money script as a 13-year-old kid with TAPS, that obviously formed your money script Mm. and it had such an impact on the way you accumulated and wanted to help others accumulate. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, I was just talking to some clients just before this interview and, um, you know, now, you know, I'm 43 years old and, I, you know, I'm a father of three and I was talking to these guys and I said, what's big for you? And they said, oh, we want to do this, this and this and we want to set our kids up. And I said, you know, 
there's a bit of a danger in that because often as parents we think, oh, we want to make sure our, you know, our kids get it better than us, you know, mm-hmm. and I... I remember thinking, you know, 13, 14, oh, woe is me, how hard is my life? My friends, parents buy them runners and they've got Mercedes Benz and all this sort of crap. You know, today I'm, I couldn't be more grateful for the upbringing that I had because that's turned me into who I am today. And so the danger for me is, and it's a very inherent danger, is giving my kids too much because we've got to let them make their mistakes and we've got to let them, you know, earn their own income. So, you know, I'm my boys are 13, they... They have pocket money, and, and when they get to 14 and three quarters, they'll be getting a job. And they'll earn their own money, and I'll show them that all my boys, I've got three boys, they've all got two money boxes. One is for saving, and one is for spending. I want them to understand the importance of putting some money away for a rainy day or saving for that big ticket item, whatever that may be for them in their world. I mean, my boys aren't saving for an investment property at 13, don't get me wrong, but you know, they're trying to learn the, or understand the art that is saving. But also, I need them to understand the importance and the value of the dollar. Because um, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much money I have or don't have. I, I think that you know, one of my biggest jobs would be to be the very best parent that I could be. Jason, we'll have to wrap it up there. No worries, Caroline. It's always a pleasure talking to you. You know that. And that's all we have for you today, guys. Next week we have a very special interview with the market wizard himself, Mr. Jack Schwager. We speak to Jack in detail about the traders he interviewed for the Market Wizard series and what he's working on now. We hear Jack raw, upfront and personal. I'm Caroline Stephen and on behalf of the team, thanks for your company. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.